I got one of these just as I press go live. I got one of these texts. FedEx. Hey, Troy Hunt, your FedEx shipment is planned for delivery. And you always go, am I actually expecting a, sh a shipment or a package? It's like, yeah, I, I always am because it's 2023 and you buy everything like online on the internet. And then I'm like, is it legit? Because this week I've been waking up every other day and having some sort of phishing attack via SMS about packages. Uh, point in case, Monday morning at 2am, because that's apparently when people try and deliver packages, your package can't be delivered due to incorrect info. Update at HTTPS, good for security, <laughs> post.fast-ing.cc. Now, I don't think humans can actually read and make good sense of legitimate URLs, but uh, that one is very, very clearly not legitimate. And I've been getting a heap of these lately, so I don't know <laughs> quite what's going on there. All right, I've got a lot to talk about today, and I do need to keep it on time. So let's start with the sponsor. There's a sponsor I've had before, and it's Aura. And Aura is identity theft protection. And one of the, the questions that came up last time was they said, uh, a number of people said, can I get Aura in other parts of the world? I am, for example, Australian. Uh, and, and no, at the moment it's US-based, but I'm really wanting to hear people go, I would really like to have a good identity theft protection that isn't, and I won't name them, but some of the incumbents that we have here in Australia and I'm sure in other parts of the world. So if this looks good to you, please let me know because I'm going to pass it on and put a little bit of pressure because I like what they're doing and I'd really like to see it in other parts of the world. Be that as it may, sponsored by Aura, secure your assets, identity and online accounts with our award-winning ID theft protection. Get started with Aura today. Now, they've also got some cool ads. I feel there's a little bit of 1Password in this as well where they've got a big name <laughs> doing promotion. So Robert Downey Jr. is doing promotion. I don't, I don't mean me. Robert Downey Jr., like proper Iron Man stuff, is doing promotions for Aura. The smart, simple way to stay safe online, all in one. Digital safety to the whole family, protect from any theft, fraud, and online threats. Uh, so please go and check them out. If you're in the US, you're good to go right now. If you're not in the US and you'd like to see something like this, uh, send me a message. I do pass them on because I do like to, I like to be all inclusive. I like to have Australia covered. I am conscious that something like identity theft is very different in different parts of the world. So uh, we are different. A bunch of you listening to this will be in UK and Europe at the moment, different over there. So we get that. Moving on. Rob Langford's here. Morning also. Rob would be on my time zone in the morning, so he might need an Aussie version <laughs> of Aura. Uh, JF is in Sarasota, FL. Now, I always find it funny, JF, not to group everyone together, but Americans seem to use acronyms for states and assume that the 96% of the world that's not America understand what you mean. Now, I do understand you're Florida, okay, but I've spent a lot of time in the US, although not in Florida. Um, but I'm sure that if, uh, if I was to say, g'day, everyone, from sunny QLD, most people would go, what is that? And so we, we say Queensland because we're inclusive. <laughs> Sorry, Joe, that's a, a very harsh start for you, mate. Uh, now, actually, let me see. Uh, I was going to say, I was going to say NT because we've got a, a well, it's a, it's a territory, not a state. Apparently, there's a difference. We learned it in school. I've forgotten about it. 
but we have a state in Australia called the Northern Territory, and it is it is the proper doll. Proper doll. <laughs> there you go. There's a new word. It's the proper crocodile Dundee state or territory of Australia. It is the outback. I have been there actually a couple of times now, and it is it is amazing and spectacular, and what you would expect from crocodile Dundee. And someone sent me a DM today about a story in the NT, and I'm just so used to seeing crazy headlines. Now, I can't even read a lot of these headlines on this and not get a flag somewhere. But if you're curious and you have time free, Google uh, NT News headlines and uh, Google image search is good, and you'll see some amazing stuff. You're welcome. You'll be entertained. Hmm. Now, uh, I did just push out a breach. I really don't think there's much to talk about. Um, I tried for days to get in touch with these folks. Didn't work out. Right, Biz? Almost looks like a... It looks like a, a sort of an online-only thing, which is fine. <laughs> like, have I been pwned? Yeah. Uh, but it just it just seemed like deliberately obfuscated in terms of the difficulty of finding details. Now, a bunch of people did some OSINT work because I did publicly ask for a security contact. Everybody drew the dots on what that meant. Did ask for some security details. Uh, I got directed to two different people. Let's just say around about halfway between here and the UK, <laughs> where they're meant to be based. Uh, none of them replied to me, so this is a bit of a a bit of a foregone conclusion in terms of how this panned out. That's one more off my backlog list. I got a massive backlog whilst I was doing all this domain search stuff. So that was uh, that was a bit of a time-consuming thing, working through. Uh, working through everything that needed to be done for the aforementioned domain search. Jay says, I'd love to walk about in the NT. So my two trips to the NT was we drove there. Now, if you're not from Australia and someone from QLD on the coast, QLD actually bought his NT. <laughs> I'm just going to start messing with JF news acronyms everywhere. Uh, it does border it, but it's a couple of thousand kilometres off. So we actually drove, this was, when was this? The end of 2021. Yeah, it would have been. Was it? No, the end of 2020. That whole period was a bit of a blur, wasn't it? You know, we were all kind of locked down. But anyway, we drove because that would have been the end of 2020 because we were very worried about the ability to actually get flights and not get locked down somewhere. And we drove from here, a couple of thousand K north, and then we drove to Uluru, uh, previously known as Ayers Rock, the big red rock in the desert. And that was my first experience. And along with like hoping not to get murdered along the way, because some of the places, some of the places did feel a bit like that. But the thing I remember is, is one day we did Mount Isa, Alice Springs, and the directions went like this. Go 600 kilometres straight, turn left, go another 600 kilometres, and you're there, it's 1,200 kilometres. It was the most enjoyable, easiest 1,200 kilometres I have ever done. We did it all, I think, in nine hours something without speeding much uh, because as soon as you get to the Northern Territory, it goes up to 130 kilometres an hour, radar cruise control, just sat there, perfectly straight roads. You could come up behind like a road train or some massive truck and because it is perfectly straight for 600 kilometres, you can see everything. <laughs> so it was, it was good fun. Second time I went, while well, we're talking about, uh, and we will get to cyber things, NT, is during that whole weird COVID period, we were meant to go down to the snow. Yes, Australia has snow. And it would have been about this time of year. And borders and things got locked down 
going south to the snow, but not going north because everyone knows that as you go further north, it's warmer. <laughs> Still messing with you, Jeff. We ended up going to the Northern Territory instead and went to Kakadu. And it was, uh, to this day, probably the top three best holidays we've ever had. It was absolutely sensational there. So if you come to Australia, do go to the NT. There is a logo that's regularly used for the NT. I can't talk about that on here either. I'll get trouble again. So Anyway, it's great. Uh, Rob says, drove a bongo around Oz in 2011. Still got to close the loop across, uh, still got to close the loop because, uh, across the bottom between Sydney and Perth. Well, of course, to go from Sydney and Perth, you've got to go through Melbourne as well. I have not driven that part and, and I hear it is absolute boring as batshit because <laughs> there's just nothing there. The desert was was repetitive, but I wouldn't call it boring. Uh, Joe says, I need a little less population density for a bit. So from memory, our population density in Australia is, is like the second lowest in the world after Greenland or something with about, I think, two people every square kilometre. But it is fascinating doing that drive and just going for so long without seeing any man-made stuff at all, uh, rarely seeing cars. And this is on a, on a, like a, I guess, a major highway, they'd call it, uh, and also having no cell signal as well, which wouldn't have worried us back in the day. But now it's like, I don't have cell signals. Like, what if I break down or something? TMOC1977 says, uh, what is with OneDrive Windows 11? I'm getting constant notification. I don't know. <laughs> Log a ticket? I, I have no idea. All right, let me go and talk about stuff that I actually really want to cover today, which is around the domain search things. Now, every week for the last few weeks I've done this video, I've spoken about domain searches in Have I Been Pwned, the subscription model, the pricing. I'm not going to go back through all of that because that's old news now because everything is live. Uh, we did silently push this out on Sunday. It was, it was terrible timing because Charlotte had a cold and she was pretty incapacitated. So... I pretty much did all of those those bits uh, myself, hoping that I hadn't screwed anything up. And as best I can tell, I don't think I did screw anything up. I think it was all pretty solid, which was good. So it rolled out. Everything pretty much did what it was meant to. Got to Monday. I'd hoped to get the blog post out Monday morning. It ended up being the end of the day Monday just because I had to write it and get everything spot on. And I'm really, really happy with how it's gone. That's the first thing. So it's a major thing. Nothing has broken. I have seen one piece of negative feedback. Someone whinging on Mastodon because they don't whinge on Twitter anymore because Elon. <laughs> and then that was it. But that was the entire thing. And that was a whole bunch of rash, irrational dribble. So that doesn't matter. So feedback has been really, really good. Now, um, just wondering what order I should do this in because there has been some feedback that has been actioned. Uh, None of it bad, more of it, I think, just around uh, expectation setting and making sure that it aligns with with the way people actually use the service. You know, one of the, the bits of feedback which, which I still don't have a good solution for is that it is a little bit confusing, this whole thing about the domain sizes are based on how many breached accounts they, they have on them, but we don't include breaches that are spamless. So if you've got a domain, I gave an example in the blog post, someone had a domain that had like 300 breached email addresses on it, but every single one of them was in a spam list and none of them actually existed. So that person gets rationalized down to zero. Uh, other people, I think another example I gave in here had 40, but really there were only 13. There were actual email addresses 
on data breaches. So the, the, the logic is sound. The way I've done the UX needs work because I think having sort of two columns there. So there's one column, which is like, here's everything in every breach. Uh, you know, that would be the 40 in this guy's case. And then here's the ones just in the spam list, the 13. That's what we assess your, your subscription on. So I need to figure out, I need to figure out a better way to do that UX. There is a debug mode, which then gives you a heap of info. And I, I'm kind of okay with debug mode having verbose data on there because that's kind of the point right you get a verbosity and a level of information you don't get when you're just sort of browsing whatever tool it is that has a debug mode but something needs to be clearer so if you are a ux person and you have ideas i'd love to hear them the other thing and i'm really just ringing off the top of my head here i didn't write this down but the other thing that's come up a few times is it's not necessarily clear to people that if you have 10 domains and they are all under your one account and have I been pwned and you see the 10 domains there the subscription you need in order to search all of them is only the subscription that covers your largest domain you don't have to add them all together and then it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse uh, if your largest domain has got 20 breached accounts on it then you only need that pwned one subscription which gives you up to 25 breached accounts that's got to be clearer too, because I don't want a situation where someone is spending money thinking they need something bigger than what they actually do. Uh, that, like people just don't feel good if the penny later drops. So that's got to get sorted out too. Um, someone made the point that it could be clearer on the dashboard uh, which account you actually need in order to cover your domains. And, and I'm, I'm not, feedback is good, but it doesn't mean they're right. <laughs> I mean, we've all had feedback before where you go, that's just, that's just weird. Now, this is well-intentioned feedback, but the reason I say this is that as soon as you click the button to show the four different plans, the one that's best for you has got a great big red bit at the top which says recommended, and I think there's a thumbs up or something like that. So I'm not sure that's sound advice or sound feedback, but I need to hear from other people. So... If you see that and uh, and have some ideas, I'd like to know about it. You know what? Let me actually go into my dashboard and then I can look at what I'm talking about. It has been an exceptionally uh, hectic time this year trying to trying to do all of this as well as all the other things that I've been <laughs> doing. Shelley's mucking around various crap. Oh, yeah, my home assistant SSC. SSID, it's not SSID, SSD NVMe drive came as well. Two terabytes worth of uh, NVMe SSD, which will go into the thing that I unboxed last week, which I still haven't, I haven't even done this again. Last week I unboxed it and I undid it on the live stream, put it down, and that's the first time I've picked it up since. What was I doing? Uh, try at troyhunt.com. <laughs> yes, that is on my contact page. I know I just said it, but it's public. That's how I get email. I give people my email address. Mm. So I plug that in. I get the uh, get the little email while that's happening. Yeah. Mr. and JF. Troy, you've created such an amazing resource for the world. I hope you get a lot of goodwill from all people. Yeah, and I, I am, honestly. Like, I get a lot of good feedback. Uh, I did get a nice award this week too, didn't I? From the uh, ISSA for a, a Hall of Fame thing, which was kind of 
kind of funny because it was one of those ones where it's like, I am aware of this organization, but is this legit? Because there are a lot of awards out there which are which are not legit. It's like, hey, you've got an award. Please send $1,500 here and we'll send you your award or you know, just really sleazy stuff like that. And I do like to highlight them when I get those emails, by the way. Uh, but this one was legit. They did have a little bit of a false step along the way because they published the the nominees and the one that had my name on it had someone else's photo on it. <laughs> like I was a totally different guy, a bold guy. And I I just commented underneath. I was like, what happened to my hair uh, with a sad face? Uh, and then they removed it. <laughs> and it came back up. Anyway, I got that award. I think five people in total got that award. So that was nice. So I, I do get the, uh, recognition and goodwill. Thanks very much. Uh, now, okay, so I'm back on my dashboard just now. So, for example, if I go and I click the purchase new subscription button, I get a big recommended thumbs up on Pwned 1 because if I was to purchase with my list of domains here, the biggest one I've got is actually the, the HIBPintegrationTest.com domain. Uh, so that's all I would need. Now, but you see, I am only showing one column here. I am only showing the column which shows how many breached addresses are there. So I'm actually okay with that. And then it's only when I go enable debug mode that it reloads and I see the addresses excluding spam, all addresses. And then as I was explaining last week, we're, we're grandfathering in the size of the domain for the duration of the subscription. So if you take out a one year subscription and there are, let's say 10 breached email addresses on this particular domain, uh, as you get through and the domain gets larger and larger and larger, you still get to search based on, so even explaining it's confusing, isn't it? your subscription sticks at the size it was when you took it out. And then in a year when it renews, if the domain's bigger, you'll need a bigger subscription. Anywho, I think all that's clear. I know I just explained it in a confusing way, but I think if you sit here and look at it, it's clear. Um, and then if I look at subscriptions, you don't currently have a, an active HWP subscription. Domains with up to 10 breach accounts can be searched for free, or you can purchase a subscription below to create larger domains. All subscriptions also grant access to domain and email address searches. I think what I should add here is your subscription only needs to be sufficient to cover your largest domain, and all others are included, or something to that effect. Yeah, something to that effect. If you have ideas, send it through. Gordon's here. So your recommended actuality cares about the customer instead of your pocket only. First time I've seen this in this experience. Uh, I think the, the way we're sort of looking at this is we had this for free for almost a decade. Every single cent someone now pays is a bonus. So if we have a situation where, let's say, instead of paying... Uh, $25 a month, someone pays you know, $15 a month, that's $15 they wouldn't have had before. Like that's, that's, that's a good outcome. And if that is also the outcome where they're happy because of it, well, good job. That's a good segue through to the EDUs and the nonprofits. Hmm. Now I knew this would come up because it was flagged a bit in advance. And 
obviously uh, a bunch of EDUs are constrained financially. Now, I just want to be careful the way I say this because I pay private school fees. <laughs> now, if you're not from Australia or you're in a part of the world that doesn't have private schools, like Norway, which unless apparently unless they're like Steiner school or something, like whether you're the pauper or whether you're the prince, everybody goes to the same like government public schools. In Australia, we do have what is unfortunately a two-tiered system. We have the public school system, which you can go to for free. We have the private school system you can go to and pay, depending on where you are in the country and which school it is, extraordinarily high amounts of money, like tens of thousands of dollars a year, particularly some of those Sydney private schools. They are big businesses. They make huge amounts of money. Our two kids are at private schools. Uh, they're not many tens of thousands of dollars a year, but I think, and, and look, all this is public knowledge, but it's well into the teens per year. And then as they go up through the years, it gets to 20-something thousand dollars a year, which you have to pay with your post-tax income in order to send your kids to these schools. Now, there are many, many good reasons, a whole other discussion about why we do that. Regardless, my point is, is that that EDU is very different to an underfunded state school you go to for free, which is dependent on government resources. So I'm a little bit cautious when we're talking about how do we help EDUs that there are two polar opposite ends of the extreme. Uh, then, of course, you've got your nonprofits as well. So the, the, the two themes that are coming up a lot is what if we're an EDU and and the implication there is we don't have enough money, which in many cases is true. And what if we're a nonprofit, in which case they're obviously operating on a shoestring and they're doing good things for the world. Now, originally, the, the view we took as a default, because we didn't know how to handle it, to be honest, is, look, if every organization uh, gets measured based on the number of accounts they have on them. And that's the way we apply the pricing scale because that's the thing that we can independently analyze. I can't look at two different EDUs and go, well, you're rich and you're poor. Uh, that's, and so, you know, you get this and you don't, or the other way around. So that was sort of the default position, but we got so many queries really, really quickly. And w one of the things that actually made it very, <laughs> very easy to have a discussion is I did a talk, uh, oh, it must've been a couple of months ago, here on the Gold Coast for the Independent Schools Association of New South Wales. Uh, that's NSWJF, which is, which is our state next door. And uh, I did a talk there, and it was a commercial talk. I charged money. This, this is my job. And the talk went really well. I met lots of awesome people. We had a really nice time, but made lots of good connections. And a bunch of those folks reached out after this launch, and they went, you know, look, this, this puts us in a rock and a hard place because we love using the service, but we've got literally thousands of email addresses on our domains, which puts us straight up there in the top whack. Now, that's a problem because I don't want people, I appreciate there will be a certain rate of attrition when once you put money on things, but I don't want to be losing the likes of schools for whom this is such a really useful, valuable service, particularly when we talk about can it be used to educate kids to get the right behaviours and so on as well. Now, a bunch of people also said, look, schools also are a bit unique because of the rate of attrition. Every student leaves. <laughs> now, that my first thought was, oh, yeah, like that would be a really high rate of attrition. And then I thought, well, I'm actually not sure. Now, the, the TLDR is that I don't think it matters anyway, but I'm just not sure that 
if you think about if it's a school like uh, like a, a kids are at, you know, it's primary and senior school, they would, and they're generally, I think they only get an email address when they sort of, does their daughter have one? I don't know. <laughs> they um, they might only get an email address when they get the secondary school, but even if they have one in the junior school, well, then they've really got it across both, you know, the first two, two parts of their education. Uh, you're six years in each, 12 years in total. How long does the average person stay at a company? I'm just not sure that's the right argument. Anyway, it doesn't matter. What we've decided to do is add something first. The whole idea of this, when it's really just Charlotte and I running all the nuts and bolts of this, is to automate, to self-service. This is the way the API key is run. It's like you go to the API key page, you put in your credit card in Stripe, you get a key automatically provisioned, and that's it. We have a ticketing system. We get a small number of tickets, I think I said since November, we've had about 600, like a manageable number of tickets, and, and that's it. Like we don't want to create a situation where we're creating a large support overhead for us. So we're very, very conscious about getting to a situation where not only do we need to, on a case-by-case -case basis, start assessing the merit of a request, but then make some sort of judgment decision about do we help out this entity, but not that entity, and so on and so forth. Anyway, bottom line is we ended up on the FAQ, now I'm not broadcasting this anywhere other than here, <laughs> but you're all friendly. On the FAQ, uh, on the support.hoveempone.com, it says, look, if you're an EDU or a nonprofit, submit a ticket and uh, I guess make your case. And I'm not going to go into the details of how we do it because I don't want to open the floodgates to every other entity that thinks that they should be thrown a bone going through the same thing. But we do have a process uh, which we're working through for EDUs and nonprofits to make it much, much easier for them to have access to the data. Uh, and I'll leave it at that. I'm not going to go into the details. Some of you may listen to this and you'll be folks that we've spoken to and you'll know. But the feedback is that that is a very reasonable approach, the way we've decided to do it. Uh, it doesn't end up at free but the problem is running the service isn't free either. So it, it does end up significantly, significantly better than what it would have been before by large order of magnitude. So that's what we've done. Now, I may communicate that more broadly later on, but we did get up this morning and have a lot of tickets that we had to manually go through. So again, we, we've got to be cautious about creating the situation where we create a workload on ourselves because I'm sitting here with this massive backlog of data breaches which still need to be processed and that's, that's really important. And if I'm sitting there answering tickets, then I'm not doing that. You're always sacrificing one thing for the other. Uh, and frankly, a lot of my time lately has been too much sacrificing family time, activity, other things like that uh, in order to be code monkey. So that's that. Now, two other things I had on my list here. One was architecture and one was new features. Let me talk about the architecture because someone sent me a message and said, look, could you talk about how all of this works under the scenes or under, under the covers? So I'm going to give you the, the elevator pitch of how this is designed in terms of the underlying data structure for Have I Been Pwn and then the way we implement the layers on top to do the new features that we've just launched. And now one of the things I'll say in advance is that I do think that over the remainder of this year and the first half of next year, we'll probably make some pretty fundamental changes to the underlying storage structure. Now, that storage structure is Azure Table Storage. And I put Azure Table Storage in there 
as a bit of an experiment. <laughs> so this was this was something that was new to me ten years ago when I built this, and my my thesis, as they say at the time, and I was in this architecture role at Pfizer as well. Um, my, my thesis was we, we always end up defaulting to a relational database. So it's like, hey, you're building an application. You need to store data. You need a SQL Server. So, well, but it's really, really simple data, and SQL Server is a behemoth. And depending on the structure you use, the licensing model can be really expensive. And do you really need relational integrity and indexes and all the rest of it, or do you just need to be able to pick a record up by a key? And for Have I Been Pioneers, it's the latter. It is literally, here is an email address. Go and pick it up and give it to me. Or here is a domain. Go and pick the entire domain up and give it to me. So I structured that table storage with a combination of partition and row keys, where the partition key is the domain and the row key is the alias. So if you're test at example.com, there is a partition called example.com and there is a row called test. So when I'm picking up that record, because someone goes to the front page, they put in testexample.com, I can go there and say, give me this partition, give me this row. It's very, very fast. It's very, very cheap. It has scaled ridiculously. I mean, I started with 155 million records. There's now 12.6 billion breached accounts. I'll come back to the difference in a moment. And that's insane. Like, it's insane that it has scaled to that point. And I've seen no degradation in performance whatsoever. I think the only time I've ever seen any performance-related issues is backing the whole thing up. So I'm going to talk about more in a moment. When someone searches by domain, we just pick the entire petition up. So pick up example.com and return it because petition-based searches are also fast. Now, that is stupidly cheap and it's stupidly cost-effective. It has issues. And one of the issues has, uh, has surfaced only this week, coincidentally, which is that the classic storage, as they call it, is being decommissioned and we have to migrate things over. Now, for the most part, I wouldn't worry about this migration path were it not for the fact that there's billions and billions of records in this particular asset. I'm very worried about impacting availability. Now, Microsoft is, is sunsetting that at the end of August next year. So we've got more than a year to figure this out, which is fine. But the other problem with that storage construct is that table storage lacks some really basic fundamental features that you need for a service that is now this scale. So, for example, things like point-in-time restore, things like restore at all. Like our backup strategy at the moment is running AZ copy. That's AZ copy for you, JF. AZ copy every now and then. Stefan's just joined. So Stefan and I were talking about this just today. Uh, our backup strategy is running AZ copy on a periodic basis, which does impact the performance of the table storage construct. Uh, we do see that in, in the figures. Because the data is so large, it takes days to run. It dumps everything to a massive JSON file. If we had to restore it, it would not be fun. It would not be fun at all. So our risk here is if there's a total catastrophic failure of the underlying storage or it gets deleted because I have a few beers and go on a bender one day, it's possible. Well, I'm not going to do that, but <laughs> it's technically possible. Then we have to restore to the last point in time that we last did this really laborious thing and then it's going to take a long time to get it back up. And that's not great. 
So it, it, it lacks that ability. It lacks the ability to do things like, what if we wanted to add other, other indexes that we could search by? Um, Stefan, one of the things I was thinking when I mentioned before I had ideas in the shower is, yeah, I would love to not have like one table full of uh, email addresses and domains and another one full of, of hashes to do the anonymity thing. I'd love to just have these as different indexes on the same entity because they've all got the same other attributes, namely the data breaches they appear in. Geo-replication, uh, we don't have a good strategy for that. And all of these things that like, you could definitely get away with when we, this behemoth of a, an application first started, but now that it is what it is today, it's a lot harder to say, yeah, we can just go through and go and, you know, just restore from a JSON file if we need to. So anyway, back to the question about architecture. That is still the underlying data structure today. Now, on top of that, most of the querying these days is done by Azure Functions. Azure Functions are serverless. It runs on servers. But we're abstracted from the servers. It adds servers, it deletes servers. We pay for code execution in terms of how long it takes and how many resources it uses, which is good. It's the way forward. It's, uh, it's thinking more about paying for your code as opposed to paying for the infrastructure. So functions are massively, massive uh, massively, massively resilient. And then on top of that, we have Cloudflare. And Cloudflare wraps around everything. It does everything from a huge amount of caching. Uh, with pwned passwords, for example, we're caching, depending on when we look at the stats, let's look at the stats. <laughs> we're caching somewhere around like 99.9999. I think we got to six nines was the highest percent of requests, which is super, super, super awesome. Uh, now this is for a service, Pwned Passwords, which is doing, last time I checked, over 5 billion requests in a 30-day window, which is pretty amazing. Our 30-day window, let's go to the analytics now. I haven't looked at this for a couple of weeks. Uh, last 24 hours, we've done 172 million requests. How about that? That's cool. For the previous 30 days, we have done 5.3 billion requests. Our biggest day there was we did 241 million requests in a day, which is insane. And this is a service that's built into the registration, login and password reset flow of many, many, many large applications. So Cloudflare does a, a really super cool job of caching stuff. Cloudflare also does a great job of firewall rules and particularly things like rate limiting. So rate limiting is a big part of these services that, that we have out there. Normally the rate limiting is done on the Azure side. So to speak more specifically about the architecture of both the, uh, the email address API that's been there in its current form since 2019 and now the domain stuff, if you picture our underlying storage construct, we've got an application tier on top of that, which is Azure Functions. How do we do things like, for people querying the API, key provisioning, uh, key rotation, rate limiting, how do we do all that? Uh, well, that's Azure API management. So Azure API management wraps around all of this. Storage, functions, APIM, APIM being the acronym. So APIM, when you go and you purchase a key somewhere on Have I Been Pwned and you say, look, go and get me an API key, that gets provisioned in API management. It gets a product associated to it, which gives you a rate limit. That rate limit then has a policy which is defined within Azure API Management, which says, for example, you are allowed to make, it's not, it's not 10 requests a minute, it's one request every six seconds. 
That's important because you can't front them all, you can't bulk them. Uh, we, we've done it this way to as evenly as possible distribute the request for the system. So that's implemented in APIM. So APIM is, is a gateway. So the requests are coming into the Azure infrastructure, going through APIM, the key's being checked, is the key still valid, has it been revoked, what product does it have, is it working within its rate limit? And then around that, we have Cloudflare. Now that's really cool because we can sort all the caching stuff at Cloudflare. Cloudflare has hundreds of edge nodes distributed around the world. Incidentally, I'm at Cloudflare Connect in Sydney in two weeks. Two weeks from yesterday, I think I'm speaking there. So that would be cool. So they're all around the world. You are almost certainly hitting a Cloudflare edge node within about 10 milliseconds of where you are when you go to have a been pwned. I'm hitting one in Brisbane, which uh, as the crow flies is a, what are we, 60, 70 kilometers that way. Apparently that's about 10 milliseconds. So I'm getting responses very, very close by. And then we started doing some tricky stuff as well. So, and I have put this in tweet streams before. Tricky stuff like when you exceed your rate limit, your rate limit is based at Azure API management. So you're querying this API, let's say querying email addresses, and you're allowed to make one request every six seconds, but you're obnoxious. So you get an HTTP 429 back and it says you've got to wait five seconds and you go, nah, screw it, I'm just gonna keep going and hammering and hammering and hammering. And suddenly we've got all these requests coming into APIM that are getting HTTP 429s, but they're consuming resources on APIM. And we've got an APIM that's this big and you're starting to take more and more of it. So we can do stuff like create Cloudflow rules such that if you get too many HTTP 429s from APIM, then the traffic starts getting a 429 at Cloudflare for a longer period of time. So it's, it's essentially the naughty corner. <laughs> so you've had too many HTTP 429s from APIM, Cloudflare puts you in the naughty corner for a longer period of time. I should use that in my talk, the naughty corner. <laughs> I think people like that. Um, that's a really good example of, of sort of using all of these tools together. Now, as it relates to the domain search bit, all we had to do with the domain search was working from the bottom of the stack upwards. The underlying storage construct is already there. The Azure functions were already servicing domain searches from the web interface since I rolled out the changes about two months ago and, and I foretold of the coming commercial bits. So you are already hitting an Azure function. So we had to create another Azure function, which just returns JSON and conforms to a, to a standard. And then we called that via APIM. So we had to go into APIM, create another operation, is the nomenclature, another operation in the same API. Uh, and then that gets routed through Cloudflare. Cloudflare actually redirects a lot of traffic. So when you see a URL in your browser, uh, haveabeenpwned.com forward slash API, for example, it gets to Cloudflare, goes to a worker, and then it goes off to somewhere completely different in terms of path and structure. It goes off to an APIM URL, different domain name, different path, and then of course it goes down to functions and then it gets the data from table storage. So eventually it all works. <laughs> Let's just agree on that, it all works. As I check my dashboard to make sure it all still works. Normally you find out very quickly if stuff is not working. Now I did have one misstep, one misstep that nobody got, nobody noticed this. And I'm going to push the fix as soon as I finish this video because it's related to the new features I want to talk about. One of the things I didn't realize is that in Azure API management, I have four products, 10 RPM, 50 RPM, 100 RPM, and 500 RPM. 
they're considered a product. And the product has a policy on it. And the policy is what sets the rate limit. One request every six seconds, for example. So they're their products. Then I have an API, which is have a been pwned API, and then I have the operations. Uh, search for an email address, search for a domain, etc. Now what I didn't realize is that the rate limit on the product was applied to every single operation. Now, I got away with this because up until we launched this earlier this week, no one was doing API searches for domains. If they were, you don't need to query a domain very much. It's not like a, an email address search where you might be going through a large list of your customers, for example, to see who's at risk of account takeover attacks. But what I subsequently learned is that that rate limit is applied across every single one of those operations. Now, the way I learned this, and I'll talk about how I fixed it after this, the way I learned this is when someone approached me with a really, really good idea this week. So the joy of an API, I've been explaining this to my son, <laughs> he's 13, he's learning to code. Planning APIs. The joy of an API, as you all know, is that it allows other people to build things on your things. Very different to just having the browser-based domain search experience, which deliberately tried to make sure that it couldn't be scraped and automated and everything else. Now it's like, here is code so that you can take domain searches and you can build it into your other product. And I'm thinking, look, there'll be people running socks and other sorts of tooling. They'll want to build that domain search in. It will be great. Someone popped up earlier this week and wanted to build it into a very well-known product. I'm not gonna say what it is. I'm gonna wait until this is done, hopefully next week, and we'll talk about them. A very well-known InfoSec product, and they wanted to integrate it into there. And the, the guy said that there are actually two other things that would be really useful to have to help me do that. One is, can you create an endpoint that lists all the domains that someone is currently monitoring? I thought, gee, that's, that's really obvious, <laughs> you know, why didn't I ever do that? You can do that in the browser via the web, but that's not meant to be automated. So can we just have an API where you pass your API key and it comes back and says, yeah, you know, you're monitoring you know, troyhunt.com and arihunt.com or whatever. So yep, that makes sense. And he said, also, could you have an API that returns the current subscription level? Because then in the dashboard for this product that he was making, he's like, I can then show, this is your have I been pwned subscription level, these are your domains, and then you can run searches against the domains. I was like, not only is that a really, really good idea, and I kind of feel stupid for not thinking about it earlier, but it's really, really easy. So I wrangled it up that day and pushed it out silently. So you guys don't know what it is yet. I think I'm going to try and document it and publish that today. But uh, I pushed it out, and now it's available for anyone who knows where it is. So I know, I'm always lost for words because it's so simple and it's so obvious. But anyway, so he's taken this. The integration that he's built for this very well-known product looks freaking epic. Like when I saw it, I was like, that, that was what I was hoping people would do. Build stuff like that because it looks amazing. And for the extremely large number of people that use this product, They'll be able to go through, drop in the Have I Been Pwned API key and immediately see their subscription level, all of their domains, and a big list of everyone in their organization who has been pwned and what the breaches were and when they happened and there's graphs and charts. And it's just, I'm just so impressed with what this guy's done. That's how I discovered the rate limit problem because I added those operations into APIM. They have to be in APIM because you've got to request the API with your API key 
because your API key is the thing that then resolves to an identity and pulls back your domains. And what he was doing is when this dashboard loads, it was making multiple requests at once. Uh, and uh, most notably those requests where I think your, your subscription level, that your list of domains, and maybe he was searching the, the domains all asynchronously together. But as soon as you made one request, you had to wait five seconds for the next one. So the fix I'm pushing today, and I'll explain how I did that in a moment, is now going to make sure that you can actually request these other APIs at the same time. So dashboards and things like that can all load uh, simultaneously. Um, and Stefan, remind me after this, I'm going to send you this. I'm going to show you what this guy's done. It's awesome. So that's the uh, that's the way that's happened. The way we fixed this, I did um, I did ping a friend on the APM team at Microsoft. It's very good to have friends there. The way we've actually ended up fixing this, I'm just going to read it because I actually summarized it in a in a tweet trim. So it's like just so I understand what I just did. There's my DMs here. So what I've ended up doing is I removed the rate limiting policy from the product. And instead I created two variables. Now I didn't realize until I started going down this road just how powerful APIM is, super, super cool. So the product, for example, the 10 requests per minute product had the rate limit removed, the one request every six seconds and two variables. One of them is a request number, so say one, the other one is a period of time, say six, two variables. I then created a policy fragment. So there is a concept called a policy fragment, which is almost like a reusable code snippet. So I create a policy fragment for a rate limit by key. And then within that policy fragment, uh, I set the number of calls and the renewal period attribute, and I pulled them from the variables that were set on the product. So remember those variables are on the 10 RPM product and those variables have a different value to the 50 and the 100 and the 500. So set those on there. Uh, I then went through to the, what else are I doing here? I then went through to the API operation itself and actually went through and added that, uh, that policy fragment to the operation. So what it means now is rather than having these products that are applied to everything on a per operation level, I can go through and say, I would like to uh, implement a rate limit on this operation, this operation, but then not these other operations. Now this is APIM, so that's that level in Azure that wraps around the function. For things like domain searches, <laughs> the whole reason we ended up with the monetization model is that they are expensive to run. So I don't want a situation where someone's doing a domain search, example.com, and then they just hammer it over and over and over and over again because all I've done now is given people an automated means of amplifying the very problem that led us down this path to begin with. So there is a rate limit at Cloudflare. Now, the rate limits at Cloudflare are super, super clever. And particularly, and, and just full disclosure here, Cloudflare does give us a bunch of services for the have I been pwned things, some enterprise bits. So some of these are enterprise features. You may need to pay some money to get these. But if I go into my uh, security settings in Cloudflare and I have a look at, let's have a look at my WAF here, we can have rate limiting rules and we can have advanced rate limiting rules. Now I'll give you a good example here. Earlier on I said 
API management can res return 429 if you make too many requests, but some people just hammer it over and over and over again. So if Cloudflare sees too much of that, it puts in its own rate limit. The way I've done this is I've said, okay, at Cloudflare, if an incoming request matches, and then I give it the paths of, of the email address searches, with the same characteristics of a header value of the HIBP API key, and a response status of 429. So think about what we're saying here. If, if you're making a request to this API and it has multiple requests with the same API key and you're getting 429 back and you're getting more than a number I won't disclose per unit of time, then I can block with a custom JSON response and a 429. So I'm saying if this API key is seen going to that path more than this many times per this unit of time, come back with a 429 for a certain duration, and there's a response body that says, you've sent too, you've sent too many requests that exceed the rate limit, try again soon. That's really, really cool. Now that's done on the API key level. Now I can do the same thing at Cloudflare for things like domain searches. Why don't I just use API management and put a rate limit on domain searches? Well, because if people keep hammering it too hard, you use more of that container of API management. If I do it at Cloudflare, not only is that unlimited for all practical intents and purposes, but you're going to get that response from an edge near you. Now, yesterday when I was testing this situation where the, the guy who, who's building this integration um, created, when I was testing it, I've got a little console app that just goes around and keeps, well, it's just a PowerShell script, keeps making requests over and over and over again so I can see when the 429s come. And it was really fascinating to see, you know, 200, 200, 200, 429, and then you could tell there was a latency of like, let's call it half a second, another 429, latency of half a second, another 429, because it's going through Cloudflare, then all the way to the West US and executing in Azure. And then it hit too many 429s and Cloudflare started sending responses. And suddenly it was like, bam, instantaneous response because it's coming from that 10 millisecond latency in Brisbane. Oh boy, really geeking out on this. <laughs> Cloudflare good. So that's, uh, that's pretty much where we're at. As I wrap this video up, I'm going to go and take what I've already put in stage, which works good in APIM, very carefully test it all. Make sure that our friend here who's done this excellent work, which I'm going to forward you in just a second, Stefan, uh, looks really, really cool. Make all that work, and then I'm going to document it. I'm going to put it on the API page. I'm going to push it out silently. Might not talk about it yet. And then I'm going to wait until next week, and I want to publish his work as well as those APIs. Uh, and I think you're going to be really impressed when you see it. It was I saw it, and I was like, I hadn't consciously thought about it in advance, but this is exactly what I want people to do with the API. And it just made me so happy. All right, I'm going to wrap it up there and go write some code for API management very carefully so I don't screw it up. I did break the staging environment yesterday uh, because I made changes to the product and variables in the wrong order and I broke some things. I know which order to do it in now so I don't break anything. There's going to be like a 10-second period where there'll be no rate limit, so go your hardest and then it will come back. Okay, folks, thanks for watching. I uh, shall see you next week.